0: Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Shasodia. Hey, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Good to see you again. Good to see you. And uh, wow, have we got a hot prospect on today? I tell you, this guy just got promoted yesterday. And, um, you know, so I got to update his bio when I was going through it and prep for the show. So it was great. Today's guest pete stravos who's now the global co-leader of the private equity platform at kkr which he joined in 2005 made a number of significant investments while he was there hca healthcare nielsen ingersoll rand um a list goes on and on it's a long list of things that he's been involved with that have been very successful He's been on a bunch of councils, including their Global Diversity and Inclusion Council. And prior to running, co-running the U.S., he led their industrials group, which is where he first started to experiment with the main topic today, which is employee ownership. Prior to that, he was also at another private equity firm, GTCR, and he holds a BS in chemistry from Duke University and an MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar, which means he's damn smart. So there we go. Pete, glad to have you. Welcome. Timothy Raj, thanks for having me. Brilliant. So, okay, let's begin with the basics. What's the interest that KKR has in employee ownership? Tell us a little bit
1: about how that came about. So the interest in employee ownership stems from a belief and our experience that, Sharing ownership broadly, and this part's important, when it's combined with Mm. lots of other tools and techniques around elevating worker voice, teaching financial literacy, sharing information transparently, really driving employee engagement, all of those things taken together can create a unique culture that is better for everyone, better for workers, Mm. better for companies and corporate culture, and ultimately better for shareholders uh, as well, and when you then elevate from the level of an individual company and group of employees to society and and to the the country as a whole, and you think about some of the challenges we're facing, starting with the lack of wealth in the bottom half of the country, the racial uh, inequities, you know, when you think about ownership, most of it is held at the top of organizations which are massively underweight people of color and women, so when you share ownership broadly, there's a racial equity component as well, not just building wealth in the bottom half, but it's also building wealth in specific segments of society that have been left behind. There's um, you know, an epidemic in the country around employee engagement. 70% of Americans don't like their job, you know, 15 to 20 percent, depending on the company, hate their employer and are thrown, you know, it's the proverbial throwing wrenches in the machinery trying to hurt their yep. employer. Quit rate is out of control. 40% of Americans quit their job every year, which is an astounding statistic Mm. um and most of america is financially illiterate so most all of this stuff employee ownership can it's not going to solve all of our problems but can lead us in a better uh direction on a bunch of these dimensions well i love that you're you're using the uh the employee ownership as the the
2: tip of the arrow to build a great culture because the interesting thing is of course you know Raj, you realize it's been 15 years. Last weekend, since we first met at John's Ranch to start this movement, um, but we start from the beginning with the idea that great cultures built great businesses, and that you know our original founding members really demonstrated that. So, I'm I'm really curious about the um, the aha moment. I'll get to you in a moment because I know you've got a special story on this. But the aha moment when you're Fellow travelers at KKR started to understand that wait a minute, great cultures build great businesses that give us great returns. Because we've been showing that data for a long time and it's been really slow on the uptake. So I'm curious, what was it at KKR that got your colleagues to say, Pete, this makes a lot of sense. Let's go for it.
1: Well, I think we've always known it. It's I think everyone at an intuitive level understands that companies are just people. Mm. You know, even if they are. Capital intensive companies, just, you know, still the operators of all those machines have an enormous influence over the success of the business. And I think we've just been, you know, building a toolkit over years. You know, I I first started this at our firm 14 years ago now. Um, And just every time we do it, we get a little smarter, get a little bit better, have come to, we've made a lot of mistakes, stepped in a Mm. lot of potholes, and, and heaven knows we're still in the third inning of figuring out how to do this well. Yeah. But I think it's just, you know, it's what we all know that people are what make companies great and uh, just trying to figure out the best way to make people happier in their work, more engaged, less likely to quit and, you know, more enthusiastic about the mission of the organization. Well, you you say, I I, I read up on you a little bit, you know,
2: it wasn't 209, 210, you started thinking about this at KKR. But I read somewhere where you said this went back to your days at Harvard Business School and that for you, this idea of employee ownership, it's had a long gestation period. It, it wasn't, you know, <laughs> you know, you're the 25 year overnight success with employee ownership. But this has been something that you've been you've been toying with since business school. So so say a little bit about, um, you know, that's a long time to have this incubate. And you've been on that journey. What have been some of the major milestones for
1: you along that path? Oh, gosh, I'll, I'll try not to bore you with my whole life story. But my dad, a lot of it stemmed from the way I was brought up. My dad was a construction worker. He operated a road grader. Uh, so he was an hourly worker for 40 plus years. And the things that my dad around the dinner table taught my sister and I were, if you're an hourly worker, you know, number one, you don't have a voice. Nobody listens to you, mm. even though you have... The best ideas because you're the one doing the work. Mm. You have the best ideas on how to Im- improve whatever process you're working on. Number two, you can't build wealth on an hourly wage. It's just, it's just very, very difficult. You know, my dad was earning $15 an hour, so getting ahead was certainly yeah. a big challenge. And then most importantly, you have no incentive alignment. If you earn an hourly wage, my dad used to talk about the need to just work steady. You yeah. know, if you work too fast, your hours go down because you're too productive. You've no incentive. To, uh, to be super productive. So my mm. all of these things you know, were the things my dad didn't like about his job. And he always wanted profit sharing or ownership in his union. And um, there were lots of, I won't, again, bore you with all the stories, but lots of things in my childhood around labor strikes that my dad went through. And a lot of it related to this hourly wage and lack of alignment. And so yeah. that left a real impression. And then when I, even before business school... You know, I, I didn't have some grand plan to be an investor. My folks didn't go to college. I didn't know what I was getting mm-hmm. into, but I wandered into an investing role a long time ago. And the first thing they had me work on was in the old days, when you sold a company, there was a manual funds flow that was done. And so the distribution of proceeds was that was all completed by telephone. Yeah. And yeah. so they would stick a young person like me in a room. And for two days, I would confirm wire transfers. <laughs> and this company that was being sold was, um, and by the way, we're, we're going back in that direction because there's so much fraud in wire transfers today. We're going back towards verbal confirms of everything. But, um, you know, during that process, it was striking to me, maybe there were 60 owners in the company, something like that. And right. when I confirmed the wire to the really senior people, it was very matter of fact, you know, yeah. got the wire click confirmed, uh, and then when you got down to that 60th person who got a fraction of the people at the top, they were overcome with emotion, mm. and you know you just kind of had a moment where it was like, wow, what what untapped enthusiasm exists in this company if more people felt like they were a part of what was happening? So that's what led yeah. me. Uh, there were things like that along the way that led me when I got to business school. To your point, to mm. kind of study the history of employee ownership, and there's a long history. Uh, stops and starts and failures and, you know, study what went wrong. And then that was the beginning of me starting to think about, hey, how could we do this? Um, You know, when I get into a leadership position someday, what might we try and how could we make it effective?
0: Wow. Love it. When you first introduced this idea uh, to your colleagues, was there a kind of a skepticism? Because, you know, I think there's a lot of zero sum thinking in the world of business. It's like if you give more to somebody, that means there's less for somebody else. Right? Whereas, as we know, when you do these kinds of things in the right way, as part of a systemic transformation, then actually this becomes a positive some, some game. So did you encounter that kind of embedded uh, skepticism about something like this, that this is going to actually come at the expense of investors? There's been questions um, on that
1: exact, the, the last part of what you said, like, hey, who's paying for this? Mm. Like, if, if workers are getting ownership, where is this coming from? And the way we fund it is twofold. We give on a percentage basis, slightly less to the people at the top of an organization. And then our equity pool for employees is a little bit bigger. So just to give you some numbers, let's say a typical incentive plan for a private equity transaction would be 12% of the upside in the form of options for management. Maybe that Mm -hmm. 12% in our deal is like 11%. Or 10 and percent. And then the overall plan is not 12 but 14%. So that frees up three and a half, you know, whatever percent, four percent, something like that for people who would not typically participate. Now here's the thing: if you do this well, the financial performance is better. So the people at the top make more dollars. They might make mm-hmm. a slightly smaller percentage, which is kind of to your point, Raj. The the pie can grow for everyone. Um, and then if it's not done well. What's the cost of that pool going from 12%, let's say to 14%? Over five years, that you could do the math, it's 20 basis points of net return. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a rounding error. And by the way, if you can't make up 20 basis points of net return with this tool, combined with all the things that build culture that we've well, I'm sure we'll talk about, then you probably shouldn't be in this business. Um Mm -hmm. so that's how we think about where it where it comes from. If I could separately address your question of what kinds of pushback. You get, you know, when you talk to a CEO, the typical pushback would be along a few different lines. One is workers are never going to understand this. Mm -hmm. So, this is a waste of time, waste of money. They're never going to get it. And the truth is, it's difficult because there's a lack of trust. Mm -hmm. According to the Treasury Department, 70% of Americans are financially illiterate. You know, there's a lot of ground you need to build up before this just suddenly and magically helps contribute to culture. And so if if a leadership team is not going to live this every day and operate in a more transparent way, delegate decision-making, et cetera, you know what, then it's not going to work. So we don't hide behind the fact that this is super hard and is is a ton of work and extra communication and training and is all about operating a different way. Another area of pushback, and I won't go take you through all of them, but another common one is, and I have a lot of sympathy for this, people are drowning. Hmm we're all drowning in information, emails, priorities, and CEOs will you know, say something along the lines of, holy cow, Pete, I've got to decarbonize. I've got to build diversity at all levels of my organization, change the way we recruit. I've got to reduce the utilization of water and energy and reduce my landfill tonnage and you know, on and you want the financial metrics by the 15th of the month, the financials shortly thereafter and on and on and on. And now you want employee ownership, really robust employee engagement, teaching financial literacy training, delegating decision-making, operating transparently like I can't do it all. So you tell me what the priorities are and I'm happy to do them, but I can't do 50 things. The unlock in getting Mm -hmm. people's minds around this is if you do those last things well, everything else becomes easier. But- Mm -hmm. But I do have sympathy for how overwhelmed human beings are and leaders are of companies.
0: Now, I recall, Pete, that when, uh, when I first started studying Whole Foods, and I wrote about them in Firms of Endearment, and then John Mackey and I did the Conscious Capitalism book. One of the startling things about Whole Foods as a public company was on this question of stock options, where at that time, I believe in the typical public company, 75% of stock options went to five people in the company, the CEO, CFO, and a few others. Uh, at Whole Foods at that time 93 percent of stock options went to ordinary employees and seven percent went to the top 25 executives so it's a vastly different distribution uh, within the company and so your ordinary cashiers and everybody else had a little bit of of stock and and Whole Foods stock did extremely well over the uh, decades that it was a public company and so you know those people did end up with a meaningful amount of money maybe enough to buy a car or put a down payment or you know pay for college and so forth so i think that is a big part of what the whole Foods story was about you know there was this kind of shared uh, you know sense of uh, forgiveness and purpose and and uh, and values and, and a kind of egalitarianism as well so the people at the top not only did they have less in terms of stock options but even the salaries were much more modest Whole Foods had a salary cap of nineteen to one, voluntarily adopted. It used to be fourteen to one, then became I think sixteen, and then nineteen to one. I think that remained for a long time, if, if not even now. And so that's a whole set of things that they did. And you know, it might be I don't know if you maybe that's going too far for most public companies to uh, to stomach, but they held true to those uh, those principles for a very long time. Yeah, and I guess it raises the question,
2: Pete, about um, the type of CEO. That you're recruiting, because you know uh, recently a report came out and said, at least over here in the Financial Times in London, was that uh, you know seventy percent of CEOs are brought in, only thirty percent usually survive from the from the original company. Seventy percent of the time, private equity will bring in a new a new CEO. So you bring in that new CEO, typically they're from the outside, and. You've got a pool of really sharp, strong operators who are good at turning something around in three or four years and helping you sell it and reap the rewards. And I'm really curious about now you're going to that group and sort of saying, you know, hmm, you know, you've got your magic playbook. And now we want to, you know, yeah, we want you to do all those other things. But now there's a different mindset that comes in around, you're going to engage the employees, it's going to be more transparent. You're going to empower decision-making. These are pretty important ways of running a business that are different from, you know, the way many of what you might call a hard charging P E CEO might be, might be naturally drawn to. So I'm, I'm really curious about, you know, like, have, are you now drawing from a different pool of CEOs? Are you, I mean because i can't imagine that that typical pool is 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 terribly enthusiastic about this approach
1: well i i do think over time as a result of this effort we have become more drawn to mission oriented companies
2: hmm.
1: think of you know wellness uh health companies that are genuinely improving people's lives but even companies that don't obviously have a mission. I'll give you a great example. The right CEO can create Mm. meaning in the work that the company's doing and really build a special culture. So there's a guy we we just invest in a company called Groundworks. Mm -hmm. It's a consumer services business that fixes foundation damage in homes. So if you had water damage in your house, your foundation gets damaged, they come in and repair it. So this guy Matt Malone runs it. And, I, you know, when I meet CEOs, there's a bunch of questions I always ask them, you know, one of which is kind of what's the what's the point? You've already made a ton of money. Mm. Why are you still doing this? Why are you jumping out of bed at 430 in the morning as this guy, Matt, truly does to go build the business? And when you ask a question like that, usually the best here's what you is the best you can usually hope for. The best you, you can usually hope for is, oh, geez, Pete, this is important work. We're. You know, we're helping people stay in their homes in a safe manner as cost efficiently as we can. This is like, this is this is meaningful work. So it's kind of like an elevated customer value proposition. I would say that's the yeah. best you can hope for. This guy, Matt, in two mm. seconds flat is like, oh, there's only one reason we exist. And that's to elevate tradespeople. Mm. That is like one in a, one in a thousand yeah. people that you come across. Yeah and when you come across those people what you find is the way they treat people the types of people they attract uh you know how hard charging everyone is because that mission is so important yep they end up winning in the market not and you're not they're not seeking out more money it just kind of all happens you know like they're out doing mm-hmm. something meaningful they're impacting people's lives yes they're delivering good customer service and and good value to customers and all the rest but underneath it all this guy's like killing himself to impact the whole you know consumer services market and how trades people are treated so Mm. that's what you're looking for and i and we we've been fortunate enough to get to partner with a bunch of people who you
0: know who who think and operate that way Mm. so in a way pete that's that's saying that the most important stakeholder in the company is the employee, you know, and we often have this conversation in our, in our movement. Uh, some leaders will say it's the customer. Some will say it's the employee, you know, and some say, well, you really can't separate those two. They're like two wings of a bird. You need both. right? obviously we do, but I think putting the employee first uh, because they have the most invested and that's where the, the impact, you know, customers can switch easily and so forth. for employees, there's a deeper level of emotional you know, investment in a way and a deeper level of anguish, as you've talked about. I mean, I was surprised. I had not seen that number that 40% of Americans voluntarily quit their job every year. Wow, that is, I mean, I know there's high turnover in retail and other sectors, but that's quite a shocking uh, number. But in a way, and you know, when, when we did this book with Bob Chapman, Everybody Matters, they also talk about the employee. We measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. And basically employees making the lives of their employees better is their primary driver. Right. So it's like, you know, we're in business basically to provide a a good future for these people. And I think that is a powerful drive, just given the state of of where our economy and our society is right now, the level of insecurity and the level of pain. You know, the statistics like 40 to 50 percent of Americans have less than $400 in the bank and they could not raise $2,000 within a month if they had an emergency. I mean, there's a lot of suffering out there. And I think putting that employee first, the idea that there you go, (laughs) everybody matters. And now I put a subtitle of everybody wins, you know, everybody matters and everybody needs to win. And I think that what you're doing is is moving in that direction of giving people not only dignity and uh, safety, uh, but also some degree of financial security, which, you know, in the richest country in the history of the world, it is shocking how many people are financially deeply deeply insecure so i just want to commend you for identifying and then doing something about the biggest challenge i think that we face collectively in our system if we don't do something about this the whole system can get appended as we're seeing around the world and as has happened historically right this kind of the revolutionary energies get unleashed out there when people become so so unhappy and uh, suffer to that extent do you find that this is catching on is it going beyond kkr do you find that there's uh, others that are starting to see this in the industry yeah we we so
1: my um my wife and i were starting a nonprofit foundation called ownership works this is now i don't know a few years ago and the wall street journal in an article mentioned that this is something we were working on and we got a bunch of inbounds from other you know nonprofit foundations labor leaders investment firms pension funds Consulting firms, accounting firms, you know, a bunch of people saying, hey, if this is very interesting, if you are going to make this a serious effort, we'd like to be a part of it. So ownership, we, we slowed down the launch and ended up having, I think, 70 organizations join and found it um, together. We're now headed towards over 100 organizations. I think we have a wait list of 237 mm-hmm. investment firms that are interested in joining, and the investment firms that join make commitments to roll this model out in at least three companies in the next you know two years to share data back to the nonprofit to agree to certain standards like for example making sure workers are not being asked to invest out of pocket to buy stock that's not this is not about you know creating risk for workers this is about an incremental free yeah. benefit not a trade for wages or 401k or anything like that and then the payoff and the return The company is through culture and better retention, Mm -hmm. more engaged workforces. But yeah, we we've there are a lot of you know people working on this, a lot of very smart people working on this, trying to help us do this as effectively as we can. Because as I've said at least once or twice, and I say all the time, this is very difficult. It it sounds so elegant and easy, like, oh, you hand out stock, and you know, you start to teach some basic financial skills and share some information and magic things happen. I mean, it's very hard and it takes years. You know, I mean, one one of the things you got to prepare CEOs for is you're going to roll out this program. No one's going to understand it initially. No one's going to believe it. And you've got to stick with it for, this is a this is a years long journey. And really nothing's going to happen in the first 12 months. That's going to make you feel great about all the effort. But over time, if you do this well and you're committed to it and you guys really believe in it, you know, great things can happen, but it's a, it's a long-term effort and it's about trust building and making people feel respected and heard. It's a lot of work.
0: So I know you're working with, uh, Nathan Heavy and you're doing a documentary on one of these companies and that is like a five-year project, if I understand. That's right. Yeah, I'm sure. You tell, us, tell us a little bit about that, that company and then
1: what the, uh, thought process is. Great. So Nathan is, it sounds like, you know, him, did a wonderful film called Beyond 0 mm-hmm. Uh, and I think just a very talented filmmaker so we hired him to follow a leadership team and you know 12 to 15 members of the company over yeah we'll see how long it takes could be seven years mm-hmm. um and and just document what is this really like so so the company's called Charter next generation uh, and I'll just tell you where we're at so far we're a couple of years into it And exactly as I mentioned, day one, you roll out the ownership program, and the employees are like, I don't understand it, I don't believe it. You know, I read about investment firms in the newspaper. We've been owned by private equity before. You know, I don't, I don't believe this. Um, but you know, two years in, here's here's what we try and help CEOs do. And and this is this will be captured in this film. Take a problem-solving approach to building culture and reducing turnover. So when when I talk to a, a, a great CEO and I say, we've got a scrap problem in a manufacturing plant, I'm just making up an operational problem. How are you going to solve that? That great CEO will say, well, it's very straightforward. I'm going to get a ton of data on, on where and why we're getting scrap. We're going to do a Pareto analysis. Then we're going to do root cause, problem solving. We're going to, and we're going to set up countermeasures for all of those root causes. And then we're going to relentlessly track progress against those countermeasures and fixing the root causes of those problems. And we're just going to do that over and over and over again until we solve it. When that same CEO gets an engagement survey back and the results stink and you say, well, what are you going to do? They're like frozen. Um, and so what we try and do is give them the tools that are already in their minds on how to solve problems, but just apply them to culture. So, you know, when you have a 50% quit rate in a manufacturing plant, you really, how can we actually get underneath what is going on and and identify the problems, set up countermeasures and relentlessly and rigorously track progress against those goals. Uh, When you get the survey back, what are the worst three responses can you do focus group work to get underneath why those responses are so bad, commit yourself to change and then follow through so people see, you know, you're serious about this and by the way transparently share all the results even if the results mm. suck. Gallup yep, yep. shows you people are four times as likely to be engaged if you transparently share the results of those engagement surveys which like almost no one does. <laughs> so um that is this is this will all be in the film and we have a brilliant leader at charter next generation Kathy Bullhouse who is running this playbook to perfection um and we're we're only 2 years in and as i've said a number of times this is a multi multi-year journey but her engagement scores this last um she's doing quarterly pulses she had the biggest improvement in engagement scores of our entire portfolio she's seeing you know big reductions in quit rates and She's doing exactly what I'm talking about, which is that okay, fine. We have we had a high quit rate to start with. The engagement scores weren't what, what we wanted. That's all opportunity. Now let's figure out how to solve these problems. And she's she's an amazing leader. So that will that's what uh, Nathan Havey is tracking and documenting. And if you go to ownershipworks.org, he's already dropped two kind of teaser pieces that you can see that that show just the first couple of years of what we've been up against and what we've seen brilliant I love it now you know I I'm just curious
2: within the the math of private equity again you know you have funds that have a a time cycle and a timeline and um and you know I I remember some statistics somewhere the average hold is you know 4.2 years or something uh give or take whatever um and you know you're now talking about you know one of your star stories, Ingersoll Rand, nine and a half years. You know, like, wow, somebody in the fund was getting a little antsy at that point. Um, I'm wondering how you balance that. You know, it's going to take a little longer, and the fact that you know your funds have their own economics and dynamics, and d- how does that affect your decision making when you when you go to go to do this kind of thing?
1: Well, we have a little bit longer hold period than average. So our average hold period is <laughs> a little over seven years. We have a separate core fund that we hold investments, you know, 15 years, we might hold things 20 years mm. in that core investment vehicle. So we are a little bit more long term, maybe a lot more long term oriented than maybe a typical investment firm. Um, but you know, even when we hold things, there are things we've only held three and a half years. We sold Minnesota rubber and plastics this year, an industrial company where we made big progress on mm. engagement and productivity. Um, yeah, you at the end of three and a half years, you can make some progress. It's not the same progress you're gonna get after nine and a half years, like Ingersoll, you know, where we saw quit rates go down 90% and engagement scores go up from the 19th percentile to over the 90th. And and it's all leadership, right? I mean, it's like this Matt Malone guy at Groundworks. We've got a leader there named Vicente Reynal who's incredible. He built a culture. Who's the mission of Ingersoll Rand and the purpose of the company? The tagline is "Lean on us," hmm. and the idea is, you know, we're here to make the lives of our employees a- and our customers better. And so, hmm. le- lean on the organization. You know, we're here to make your life better, to share ownership, to make sure we've got a safe work environment, give you a voice in your work. You know, in in the manufacturing world, kaizen is a, is a great way. To involve yep. people in decision making, and yep. uh, it, it's an amazing tool that Toyota developed that we've borrowed heavily from. And I would say, Vicente at Ingersoll Rand is one of the best uh, at that. Mm-hmm. So, so we're patient. You know, we, we, we're we are uh, out to really build things over time, not flip things for a high, you know, a quick IRR game. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I wish the entire industry would adopt that kind of philosophy. You know, I've had some personal experience with private equity being on board of companies, and it is very different, difficult, and and quite different than what you're describing. Uh, you used uh, purpose and mission, talking about Ingersoll Rand, and as you know, that's one of our pillars in conscious capitalism. Ad- ad- addition to culture there's the idea of the higher purpose and core values that go with that, along with conscious leadership, and then the uh, stakeholder integration. Uh, are you also emphasizing that because, you know, we find that when, when you do any one of these four things, it makes a big difference, right? If you create the kind of culture that you're building. But if you do more than one, there's kind of a multiplier effect, right? Because these things are not just additive, they're multiplicative, right? So when you put them all together, then the full power is is released. And so are you also emphasizing the need for companies to think about a higher purpose? And uh, and then make that real through some key purpose indicators and so forth, not just a tagline uh, or a slogan. Are you bringing in some of these other elements alongside because they all are complementary? Well, the most important, and, and you guys know Dove Seidman as
1: well. I think we've talked about him in the past. You know, Dove is Dove's a genius on this, <laughs> um, and you know, one of the things that Dove taught me is. The, the most important thing when it comes to purpose and values is that you don't hand them down to the organization or the CEO doesn't hand them down from up high of like, here's our purpose. It needs to be excavated from within the organization if it's going to mean anything. Yeah. And so yeah. the idea of having a purpose and having a mission is like a long journey. It's not like mm-hmm. a three-week, let's sit in a room and figure out what our purpose is. Mm-hmm. So we've been fortunate to work with With Dove and people like Dove, who, you know, spend months and months interviewing people, trying things on, hearing from the most, you know, junior members of the organization about what the purpose of the company is and and ought to be. So I think that's in in my travels around this space of mission and purpose and values, the most important thing I've seen is it's got to come from within. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it can have a huge impact. I was just talking to someone about a company that we own that provides medical transportation services. And so the, you know, ambulances and helicopter transport and more uh, cases of severe emergency and the way the industry has always been talked about has been, as I described it a second ago, medical transportation. Yeah. But this very insightful person said, you know, this company has is performing a medical intervention every 34 seconds. So is it a transportation company or is this a life-saving organization? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and could you, you know, just think about how different that is to work at, um, I work for a medical transportation company. Or, yeah. you know, I, I work for a company that has, you know, hero paramedics who are saving lives and risking their own lives in the process, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, well, I, I love that. We're, you
2: know, obviously we've been big proponents of this. And and I'm curious, how does this change your approach to due diligence? To I me, mean, when you start looking at potential uh, acquisitions, is there something in your head that goes, ah, this won't work here, <laughs> or, you know, oh, this one's ripe for purpose and mission, and they could really benefit from, uh, from some of this stuff? Is there anything that goes on for you in the due diligence
1: process that's a little bit different because you're looking at it through this lens? Well, there's a much greater emphasis on leadership. And whether leaders can help with the with the support of all their colleagues, develop a mission and a purpose that is meaningful. Some companies, I think, are not suitable. Yeah. You know, buying like a company that makes, I don't know, you know, slot machines for casinos, <laughs> I think is probably not going to work. Yeah. Um, but... I see, you know, look at Ingersoll Rand. I mean, they make pumps and compressors yeah. and their engagement scores, the the sense of purpose inside the company is amazing. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that, that you, there's a lot of things you can do for a ho-hum from a purpose perspective, kind of a ho-hum company to make it really, mm. uh, make it really go from a mission perspective. So if you take, um, Uh, we we could just stick with Ingersoll Rand. You know, Vicente has done a great job making one of the core purposes of the company be about lifting up its people and supporting its people. But then one of the things that we've worked with most of our companies on is what nonprofit is out there Hmm. that needs your products, your services, the brainpower of your people? Find something that naturally can tie together with what everyone's doing every day and let's by the way let's leave this up to the colleagues so don't again don't have the ceo say this is it mm. tell the colleagues we're looking for a meaningful nonprofit partnership in the case of ingersoll rand it was a company a nonprofit called drop in the bucket that drills fresh water wells in africa and needs compressors to do that mm. um but you know you, you kind of leave it up to people to come up with ideas have them vote on all the different ideas. Mm-hmm. And then you say, we'll, we'll provide all the financial support. We'll give free compressors to drop in the bucket. And uh and then we're going to work to get the employees involved in, in the nonprofit. You know, at, at CHI overhead doors, they the employees selected a group called Homes for Our Troops that builds custom homes for wounded veterans. Mm. The workforce has a very large veteran component to it. All those homes need garage doors. CHI Overhead Doors became the national garage door supplier for the nonprofit, became one of its major donors. And then very cleverly, the CEO started sponsoring entire homes in the local community. So not just the garage door, but saying, okay, this home, these homes are expensive because they need to be so customized. Yeah. But okay, this $800,000 home that needs all this incredible amount of customization, because we've got a double amputee who's going to live here, Um, you know we're going to sponsor the entire thing and we're going to get our employees involved in raising money to build it. And then very cleverly, we're going to rent buses on the weekends to transport employees to go Mm -hmm. work together on the job site. Yeah. Um, And so then you build this real sense of pride and camaraderie and people are working together. And then on their own, folks are uh, organizing charity softball tournaments and bake-a-thons and all this stuff to raise money for the home. And suddenly, you know, it's about a whole lot more than making a garage door. I love it. Mm-hmm. I love it. Now, not
2: only looking at it through the purpose mission lens, but also looking at it through the employee ownership lens. Is there anything different in the due diligence process around employee ownership that you sort of say, I mean, do you, you actively seek out companies that are disengaged and uh, have high turnover? Um uh, how does that process work in, in terms of your decision-making and, and maybe even your pricing when you look at the the EO
1: component? So from a diligence perspective, broad-based employee ownership is, I, I always say there's a trade-off. Where it's harder to implement, there's typically the most upside from a culture perspective. Mm-hmm. Where it's easier to implement, typically you have lower quit rates and higher levels of engagement. So any, a, a, an easy way to think about this would be think about a global manufacturer like Ingersoll Rand operates yep. in 80 countries 60 16,000 people spread across 80 countries very complicated to implement that program uh tons of work but the starting level of engagement and quit rates you know they were not good so nope. if you do nope. it there's a lot of upside the the other end of the spectrum would be a software company where everyone's in California, everyone is financially sophisticated. Everyone gets ownership and the employee base is already pretty stable. And mm-hmm. so it's easy to implement, easy to communicate. Everybody gets it, but guess what? You're already starting from a reasonably high level of engagement. And yeah. so doesn't mean there's not still upside, but that's the trade-off that we typically see is the yeah. easy ones, maybe it's easy to do and it can be very effective, but you're starting from a higher level already.
0: But I was saying it's part of the energy that you're really more drawn to businesses where you do have this large proportion of blue collar workers who are really on the edge and struggling and so forth. And this would be a meaningful impact on their lives versus a software company where most of the people are already, you know, reasonably secure. And so the, the inspirational energy is more towards that context, the manufacturing context. Is that fair
1: to say? Well, you got to remember the aggregate statistics. So 50% of Americans basically have no wealth. Mm -hmm. 70% of Americans are financially illiterate and 70% of Americans don't like their job. Mm. And 20% of Americans hate their job. So this is everywhere. I Mm. I, I really don't think it's the case that, you know, a software company, everything's perfect. It's, I'm just giving you the relative, like it's, uh, it's, it's in a much better spot than your average manufacturing company and people are generally, as you say, more stable, but there's still, you know, there's still a lot of engineers in the world that are not in a great space financially, don't love their job, don't feel engaged, don't understand their personal finances, don't understand what the company does. So I was just trying to give you the relative. I really think this is applicable everywhere. Our experience, we've done this 30 times across seven different sectors, and Mm -hmm. we think this is uh this is a superior way of operating a company across all those sectors so we've got a lot of people in our audience who are
2: senior managers CEOs and small medium sized businesses and um you know they're already sort of heading in this direction they're interested in this thing called conscious capitalism now we bring in this thing that says hey listen this employee ownership can can really accelerate what you're doing um when you're talking to that audience what are the three things you'd think that CEO ought to focus on when they go down this path of of employee ownership? Three things that they could sort of say, okay, practical things. um, I heard it here first. Here's what I ought to pay attention to. What would you
1: touch them on, Pete? Well, you know, some of the things we've already talked about, just making sure people are up for the journey Mm -hmm. because it's a lot of work and a lot of time and it's not always going to be easy. When you share financial information, with your employees that first time, I've been in the middle of many of these conversations where your more junior colleagues are like, holy cow, I can't believe the company makes this much money. This is unethical I should we should all be paid more money <laughs> so yeah. you know you've got to be prepared for what the journey is going to entail. it's not all going to be roses all the time and you've got to have the right leadership team who really wants to do this and And I would say that's most people. I mean, you know, maybe not everyone's Matt Malone, the groundworks guy, but a majority of the time, Yeah, let me give you an example of things that happen. I would say at least one in three times, maybe maybe one in two, leadership teams are moved to tears when they roll this program out. Mm. So when they see their colleagues be acknowledged, respected, you know, sometimes they that feeling maybe for the first time in their careers, and then what it could mean for them financially, a not insignificant proportion of our CEOs and leadership teams, like I say, are moved emotionally in a significant way. Yeah. And I would say, likewise, a meaningful amount of the time those executives come back to us and say, we want to give up some of what we have to make the pool available for everyone else bigger. Yeah. Yeah. And then, relatedly, I would say the quit rate at the top goes to like zero. So, you know, we've talked about the quit rate at the bottom and what happens, but like the the sense of meaning and purpose at the top of the house goes yeah. through the roof when when this yeah. type of program is run and run effectively. So, I would say that I know you asked for three. The most important thing is do you have a leadership team that yeah. can get excited about this and have this be a core part of the mission of the organization? That's the most important thing. A lot of the other things. If you've got yeah. the the energy and the passion for this, a lot of the other things can be worked through. And I, I would have thought you would have said, and pick the right advisors. Because <laughs> I've got
2: to imagine there's a lot of, you know, we find it in purpose. There's a lot of people out there trying to push. We can do purpose for you. But there's a few that can do it really, really well and make it matter. So I, I'm just curious, you know, to what extent do you also sort of say, you know, look around. Uh, you know, there's there's a few people that can do this well. Where, here's where you should be looking.
1: Well, I would encourage people. You know, owner, so ownership works, this nonprofit foundation I mentioned earlier. The core mission of ownership works is to do exactly, help companies do exactly what we're talking about. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have had, uh, and I always hate to single out one supporter because we've had so many, but McKinsey has done an enormous amount. I'm talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars of free work for the nonprofit, helping us build the content library of what tools exist, what's worked, what's been tried. Mm. Um, And so there's a bunch of communication templates and timelines and how-tos, and I'm not saying we've got it all right and it's all going to work, but we've tried a lot of things. Um, And so this idea of teaching a problem-solving approach to building culture and leveraging ownership on that journey, that's really what Ownership Works is all about. So. Um, and inside of ownership works, we have the wisdom of people like Dove Sidman and 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 many others, uh, Gallup. You know, I, uh, who I consider to be just incredibly bright around yeah. many of these issues. Um, all of that is in the nonprofit, and there's things we're experimenting with all the time. Let me tell you one thing that yeah. I'm excited to um, experiment with. So I was with Jim Clifton, who's the chairman of Gallup, yeah. and. Uh, I was at their headquarters presenting to their leadership team about this program. And afterwards, Jim said, I asked Jim, what do you think is the most important thing in employee engagement? And I, he said, well, as you know, Pete, it's the manager, it's the supervisors. How good are they? How bought in are they? And I said, well, I know that, but in terms of what they do, what's the most important thing? he said the most important thing is that every manager has a meaningful conversation with everyone they manage every week. That's the most important thing. Yeah. The next day I was back in New York and I had dinner with a professor at Harvard Business School and had a similar discussion. And this guy's research, his name's Joe Fuller, Joseph Fuller, people may in your audience may know him. He does a lot of research around uh, workforce issues. He said, you know, it's interesting, blue collar workers, all of my research indicates when they take a position, their intention is to stay. Hmm. They know the pay. They know they can get to and from the job. The transportation works. They don't intend to leave. Why do they leave? They don't feel cared for, which ties in with Jim Clifton at Gallup saying, Are you having a meaningful conversation with your people every week? Yeah. And then they they don't see opportunities for advancement. So what went off in my head after these two conversations was, you know, for 50 years, consultants have made a living increasing span of control. Hmm. So they go inside of organizations and say, how do we cut overhead? Can people oversee more people? Yeah, yeah. And you've gone from 10 to one, 30 to one. I was looking at one of our companies for one shift, had 50 to one. Mm. How can you possibly be managing people if you're overseeing 50 people? Yeah. So how can you be having a meaningful conversation every week? And think if you're one of those 50 people and you say, holy crap, for every 50 of me, there's one person above me. I've got nowhere to go. How am I ever going to get ahead? Yeah. So the thing we're going to experiment with is a long windup. Thanks for bearing with me. What if we cut span of control? Yeah. Which nobody does because it gr- grows overhead. But what might the return be? Yeah. And so we're going to run experiments in some of our companies, and Harvard's working with us on this. Um, and we're going to run. We're going to have a control set of plants, and then a treated set of plants, and we're going to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I wonder. You know if we've just gone way too far and um i'm just very interested to see what the return on something like that might be Wow, cool very cool wow it's
0: amazing what you're doing pete you know and what you mentioned earlier about people are moved emotionally by this and you know, i think that's a very powerful thing because how often do people actually experience tears of joy at work i mean that's a very rare and therefore very important thing uh, you know, as a signal that you're doing something that truly matters to people at a, at a deep level, you know. Um, you know, one of the things I worry about, Pete, is our public markets. As you know, the number of public companies has declined significantly over time. And many great companies and very conscious companies, I would say, or who are trying to be, are finding those public markets rather hostile and, and are choosing to go private. You know, Ron Sheik of Panera, which is a high-performing company for its entire tenure as a public company chose to take it private because he said i don't know if we can keep stay true to our values and our mission purpose etc in the force of or in the face of all of the pressures and now the activist investors right who basically forced uh, whole foods uh, to get uh, acquired by amazon
1: so do you worry about the public
0: markets and we need healthy public markets right we need a sizable number of big companies uh, that are public, so that we have places to invest uh, retirement money and so forth. Uh, is that a concern? And you know, what 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 do you see as the future of our public markets? Oh gosh, what a good question! I I,
1: I have I definitely have some of the concerns that you're referencing. I don't have the answers, but I do think it's hard for a public company to say, "Look, we're going to go on a seven-year journey, and trust me, it's going to be worth it." Mm-hmm. You know, we'll we'll get there when we get there. Um, that's tough. You know, you do see activists. If you look at what's happening at Salesforce, and you know, you do have to wonder: is this is this good? I don't. Yeah, you know, I, I think the public company governance model is is not ideal. You've got public mm-hmm. board members who are doing a million other things and can't possibly have the time in their lives to be truly engaged. Aren't truly aligned in some cases. So yeah, I think it's not easy. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't have the answers. It's a it's a good issue.
2: Last question: Wondering, has this helped KKR recruit the hot young people coming out of business school because they know you've got this employee ownership angle? How has that affected the people that work in your
1: organization? How they feel about KKR as a result? Excellent question, and. know when we do our own work internally about engagement and how people are feeling this is something that comes up all the time where both formally and informally people people say i'm proud to work at kkr because of what we're doing for working families i mean we we are um yeah i mean this is something that the younger generation if you compare investors who grew up in the 70s and 80s under milton friedman and now people who are growing up today in such a different world. Sure, people want to make money, but it's not sufficient. Mm. And for young people, if there's not meaning in their work, if they don't feel like they're doing something good in the world, if they can't go home at Thanksgiving and be proud to say what they mm. do for a living, yeah, it's a real problem. So, you know, this is not the reason we did this. But a side benefit, and as you know, you guys live in this world, it's amazing the way when you try and do something that you think you're doing for the right reason, how many just good things come your way that you have no you never set out to achieve or or try and make happen. And I think one of them is recruiting, retention, engagement, people feeling proud to work here big time. That's a added benefit. And LPs. How are the LP community responding to this part?
2: Or did they just say, hey, that's great, you know, um, show me the money, but, you know,
1: hey. <laughs> it's a mix. I would say there are some who, look, the, re- the reason this is so easy to sell is it's like, if you're yeah. a hardcore capitalist who just doesn't give a damn, right. this is great for you. Yeah. And if you're a conscious capitalist, this is great for you. So- If you're blue state pension, red state pension, you're a sovereign wealth fund, there's really, it's hard to find fault with this. You know, from a performance perspective, this started in the industry group that I used to run. Um, I led, I don't know, 10 of these over, you know, a period of years. Um, We've exited of those a half dozen, all of them better than 3x, some 10x our money. I think we will keep the streak going and we will exit, you know, eight, nine, 10 straight three X deals, which I think in the history of private equity has never been done. I I don't think any industry vertical at any firm ever will say, you know, 10 straight triples, like (laughs) this has never happened. So I I think it's going to be hard for people to say that this is hurting doing anything other than driving. And by the way, we can show productivity metrics and margins and, you know, have all gone up. Yeah. The
2: field, so there's been this really interesting discussion going on, you know, that you've got pension funds, which are supposed to be there for your working class people, in many cases, teachers, fire workers, you know, public, uh, public government employees, um, and that they should be investing in this kind of thing. And now suddenly you come along. Is there just like a, a lot of extra pull now? Because from pension funds in particular, to sort of say, wow, yeah, this this helps us, you know, we want to publicize the fact that we've got X percentage of our money with these guys that are going into employee ownership.
1: I would say yes. Overall, you're asking about pension fund specifically. Generally yeah. speaking, there's a lot of support for it. We do need to keep in mind that pension fund. Trustees are our fiduciaries, our legal fiduciaries. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, th- this needs to be good for returns, which we are proving every day. It is, yeah. but um, you just got to keep that part in mind. If uh, you know, it's it's got to be demonstrated that it's also good for returns. Which, again, that's where when you show people the math and you say, "Okay, guys, yeah, yeah. you know, let's say we do this and it just doesn't work. What's the cost? It's twenty basis points of return." The break-even is is less than one percent of EBITDA. I mean, really, you can't go find that with a better culture and a more engaged
0: workforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got it. So, Pete, the really last question now—the third one—from <laughs> me, you know, as I think about where we are in this moment in time, and all of us are trying to evolve capitalism in in this more humanistic way which is a win-win for everybody as well. It's not a trade-off. And yet we are at a time when there's kind of a reactionary backlash. You know, there's all this labeling, this is woke capitalism and there are states that are trying to keep BlackRock and others from doing some of these kinds of things. Uh, Do you get that kind of pushback sometimes? And how should we be responding to that? We have to stay true to our principles and what we're trying to do and not overreact to these things. But yeah, there is a distinct energy out there of, uh, of pushing back against some of this stuff. Well, that's why right. we gotta, you know, I go back to that
1: philosophy of, if you're a hardcore capitalist who just does not care at mm. all about people, which I don't even think those exist, but if the, if they just like could not care less about human beings, you're gonna love this because you're gonna make more money. I mean, take, uh, you know, back to CHI overhead doors. We bought a garage door company. That is not a sexy industry. Mm. It had been owned by private equity for 20 years. We were the fourth private equity firm to own the company. It already had 20% EBITDA margins. Hmm. And we took the EBITDA margins, took us eight years, brought from 20% to 35%. That's a software company, right? 35% EBITDA Hmm. margins is like not normal for a company that makes Hmm. garage doors. And we made 10 times our money in a garage door company. I mean, I don't know. It's just difficult to talk about that and be like, oh yeah, but still. (laughs) But you're
2: woke, Peter, you're (laughs) woke. (laughs) Peter, this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for your time and attention. I know you've got a lot of things going on right now and especially with this latest announcement. Once again, congratulations on your new role. And thank you for being such a prominent supporter of something that's near and dear to a conscious capitalist's heart, the culture and ownership driving higher performance. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Timothy. Thank, thanks, Raj. Appreciate yeah, it. Thank you, Pete, for really your inspiring leadership. Uh, you know, it makes gives me a lot of comfort to know people like you are uh, in these kinds of roles in the world of finance. Well, that's really, really important. So thank you. Congratulations. And, thank, and thank you to our
2: listeners. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please, on whatever channel you're listening to, hit the subscribe button. And if you want to leave us a note or a message, go over to Apple Podcast, leave us a comment and a rating. And thanks very much for TechSounds for producing this. And Raj, any other things?
0: Well, I want to thank Technological de Monterey as well as our Conscious Enterprise Center for sponsoring this work and uh, this podcast. Pete, thanks so much. Thank you, guys.